But what happens for many of us is that when we present an idea of something we want to accomplish, a dream, a goal, an aspiration, and we share it with others, sometimes people who are even close to us denigrate the idea. And it's not necessarily because they're intentionally being mean, but it's as if they can't see themselves doing it, and therefore they can't see you doing it. And this is what happens to so many people is that they give their power to other people to determine what they can and cannot accomplish by listening to these negative messages. And one of the things that this woman Ruth taught me at the age of 12 was not to do that. And that is probably one of the most powerful gifts that each of us can give ourselves is to understand that we are the only limiter of our possibilities, our potential, and that in reality, we are much, much, much stronger than we have any perception of. Welcome to The Courageous Life, a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks, overcoming fears, and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Joshua Steinfeld, and it's my mission to explore insights, practical strategies, and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. If I asked you to think about what the top books were that had an impact in your life in some way, I imagine that you'd be able to come up with at least one, if not a few. For me, the book Into the Magic Shop by James Doty was one of those major influences in my own life. It's probably the book I've recommended the most, largely because it's such an engaging story. For me, it was a page turner, something I couldn't put down. And for a nonfiction book, that's saying a lot. It's also a sort of rags to riches tale in some ways. I don't know that Dr. Doty would, if he'd agree with that terminology or not, but that's my own way of framing it. And thirdly, it's immensely practical. It offers exercises and tools that you can take and experiment with in your own life that may prove useful. So needless to say, when you get an opportunity to sit down with somebody that's had a major impact in your life, whether it be a mentor, a teacher, a friend, a colleague, it's a real privilege. And so with that lead in, I'll go ahead and give you some background about James Doty. He's a medical doctor and a clinical professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University. And he's also the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at the Stanford University School of Medicine. If you listen to the last episode with Dr. Leah Weiss, she is also heavily involved in the Center for Compassion, also known as C-Care. C-Care, for those who are not familiar, is a research center that examines the neuroscience of compassion and altruism, collaborating with Stanford colleagues in neuroscience and psychology, as well as throughout the world. 
Dr. Doty trained in neurosurgery originally at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center and completed fellowships in pediatric neurosurgery at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Also, he spent nine years on active duty service in the U.S. Army Medical Corps. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, Dr. Doty is also an author. His book, titled Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart, has been translated into over 30 languages and is a New York Times bestseller as well as an international bestseller. Dr. Doty is also the senior editor of the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science and presently is developing collaborative research projects to assess the effect of compassion training on immune function and other physiologic determinants of health. The use of mentoring as a method of instilling compassion in students and the use of compassion training to decrease pain. His work has been quoted in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. He's also a successful inventor and entrepreneur and speaks frequently throughout the world on the science of compassion. I could go on and on about Dr. Doty and his accomplishments, but I have chosen to keep the introduction fairly brief and have just provided you with some selected highlights there. For more on Dr. Doty, you can always visit his website into themagicshop.com, where you can find out more about the book, different exercises from the book. There's also a podcast on there that Dr. Doty has done and more information and resources for you. In this conversation, Dr. Doty and I explore a number of topics, including his inspiring story about wandering into a magic shop and the transformative effect it had on his life and his career. The work he's doing at present around the science of compassion. And a few of the insights he's learned about compassion from the Dalai Lama and others. Since we do cover a lot of ground in this conversation, as always, I've provided links to resources and references that have been mentioned And you can find those on my website at www.joshuasteinfeldt.com forward slash podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying these episodes, it would be amazing if you could do me a favor and head to iTunes and offer a positive review. This is helpful in a couple ways. One, it helps others to filter through the many podcasts that are out there and find a valuable show. Secondly, it encourages me to keep going, just knowing that you're out there listening and finding value in the conversation. So again, if you'd like to help out, please leave a rating, even a review if you're so compelled, or simply subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. All right, enough with the plug. Without any further ado, it is a real pleasure to bring you this conversation with Dr. James Doty. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, very excited. I just want to say, first of all, that uh, your book, Into the Magic Shop, has been probably the most gifted book I've ever. So I I read through it. I've read it probably three times. I've listened to it on Audible, and now it's a book that I gift to people just because it's been so inspiring in my own life. So thank you, first of all, for your work. 
No, thank you. Uh, it, it really is overwhelming the uh, support and the kindness people have shared uh, with me in regard to how the book impacted them. It's amazing to me because um, I have people come up to me and they've like marked the book, they put tags in the book, uh, they have lists of quotes and things, and sometimes I don't even remember the quotes. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. So since this is the Courageous Life podcast, I usually start out by asking people if there was some sort of adversity or challenge that they faced somewhere along the way, perhaps it was in childhood, perhaps it was later, that they ultimately overcame that sort of put them on their path or on a certain trajectory. And uh, I know this is a little bit of sort of uh, cheating just because I've read the book and I know that you've faced, you know, a number of adversities in your life, especially growing up. But I thought maybe we could start sort of at the beginning um, with the story of the magic shop a little bit. And, you know, you're 12 years old and you're growing up and you're growing up in a home where uh, there's a number of real challenges. There's some chaos in the home. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And then this woman who showed up in your life and uh, some of the effect that she had on you. So just open it up there. Sure. Um, well, first of all, let me say that some people can come from backgrounds that nominally see, seem, um, quote unquote, normal or perfect. And there can be extraordinarily immense suffering there. And I don't want people to think, one, that my circumstance uh, is worse than their circumstance uh, necessarily. Um, but my own situation was that my father um, was an alcoholic and uh, my mother had had a stroke when I was younger and was partially paralyzed and had a seizure disorder. And she was probably... Uh, predisposed to being depressed. And those events uh, actually resulted in years of chronic depression to the point where she attempted suicide multiple times. And that, in conjunction with the fact that we were on public assistance, living in poverty, um, neither of my parents uh, had gone to college, and uh, we now know, and there's something called ACEs or Adverse Childhood Experiences, that when children grow up in environments such as that where you have drug or alcohol abuse, mental illness, poverty, uh, violence, uh, these have a profound, profound negative effect on children, especially children of color, uh, to the point where... From those types of environments, there's a very, very small percentage of children who are able to overcome that and, uh, quote, succeed in life, unquote. What succeed means is still sometimes unclear. But that being said, uh, that was my situation. And when you grow up in those types of environments or an environment where there is uh, immense suffering, especially as a child, oftentimes you translate that reality into somehow you are responsible. So that in conjunction with a feeling of shame, anger, despair, hostility, uh, was leading me down a path that was not going to help me uh, in the future. 
And at the age of 12, I had gone on a bicycle ride far from where I lived to an area where I was unfamiliar, and there was a strip mall, and within that strip mall was a magic shop. And I had a bit of an interest in magic, and I decided to go in. And at the counter was a woman that I describe as an earth mother type. And I tell people now, if you're under the age of 45 or 50, you probably have no clue what an earth mother is. Uh, And it's like talking to somebody, uh, you know, in their teens now about the Beatles. They look at you like you're talking about a car. Uh, But that being said, this was a woman who uh, was sitting there. She was wearing a muumuu, a blue muumuu, I recall. And she had sort of wavy, long gray hair. And she was wearing glasses, uh, reading glasses at the tip of her nose and with a chain around her neck and reading a paperback. And she looked up. And at that moment, uh, at least to me, she was like, um, had this radiance about her. She had this smile that was engaging. Her body language, her facial expressions were ones of an invitation to connect. What happens oftentimes, as many of us know, is when you meet somebody new, they may be suspicious of you, they judge you. They make assumptions about who you are or even your background. And oftentimes they're wrong and oftentimes they're not positive. But in this case, uh, this woman basically embraced me as soon as I walked in. And when people grow up in the environment I describe to you, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, their sympathetic nervous system is engaged. They're always in this flight or fight mode uh, because – Uh, Essentially, they never know what's going to happen. And uh, in some ways, those types of experiences are a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, and what's necessary to uh, overcome that is you have to be in an environment in which you have psychological safety. And this woman created that instantaneously, where I felt comfortable, where I sensed that she was nice, that she was caring, she was non-threatening, she was non-judgmental. And meeting people like that's an extraordinary experience. So we just began a conversation. And retrospectively, uh, it was amazing because what she was talking about uh, and what she ultimately shared with me was this concept of neuroplasticity, which was unknown at that time. This was 1968. Understanding of meditation or and its effect, positive effect it could have on you. But needless to say, after about 15 or 20 minutes, uh, she said, you know, I really like you. Uh, I'm here uh, for the rest of the summer. And um, if you show up every day, I think I could teach you something that could change your life. And again, how often does that happen to somebody? So in fact, um, I did show up, and it wasn't because I had some incredible insight at the age of 12. It was frankly because, one, I had nothing else to do, Uh, and two, uh, she was feeding me uh, Chips Ahoy cookies, chocolate chip cookies, (laughs) and so I did show up, and over that period of six weeks, uh, she taught me what I describe as uh, four tricks or techniques that really uh, allowed me to change the trajectory of my own life, and... um, uh, the first was a um, 
understanding that the stress was that I was under or was carrying uh, or that burden resulted in me never being able to relax. My muscles were always tense. I couldn't attend. I couldn't focus. And, of course, we know to learn things to achieve, you have to be able to attend and focus and relax. And so the first lesson she taught me, what is now described as a body survey and a breathing technique, um, that then allowed me to be present enough to actually learn the other things that ultimately were going to prove to be very helpful to me. And uh, so the next lesson was understanding that the ever-ongoing dialogue in my head, which uh, was not positive, which was in fact negative, and which many people have in the West, I thought it was me, and I thought it was true, and I thought it was real. And um, so the first thing she taught me was in the context of relaxing and breathing and attending and focusing was to not respond to that dialogue, just to let that flow. And these two practices are really uh, pretty much what mindfulness practices, as uh, uh, brought to the West by John Kabat-Zinn. And uh, the reason that's so powerful is because when you sit with a negative emotion or emotional state, you have a physiologic response to it. And by teaching you not to grab onto those negative comments or to respond to them in your head, of course, then you don't have uh, that physiologic response. And that's where uh, much of the positive effect of that practice is from. But what she made me understand, actually, and which I think is just as important or even more important, is that, one, that dialogue is an artificial construct. It's not real. We make it real by focusing on it. Two, uh, that when we say negative things to ourselves, such as we can't do this or we, it's not possible to do that or I'm bad, we can actually turn a statement into a reality. Once you say you're not able to do something, then by definition, you're not. And what happens for many people, and I've used this analogy on a number of occasions, is that those types of statements, brick by brick, uh, build a prison for yourself because you're trapping yourself. You're limiting your potential. You are defining the limitations of your existence. And what especially a child doesn't recognize, and actually for a lot of adults, is that negative dialogue is a manifestation of all the negative commentary that you've heard in your life. And as a species, if life is going along wonderfully, uh, it's wonderful. But if there's always negative statements being made, we have a tendency to turn towards those, and those also get set in our memory because they could create uh, a situation which could hurt us. Uh, So we often embed those, and it's a natural phenomenon. And this is why... Uh, the media, uh, they have found that if they promote super positive stories, people go, oh, well, that's nice, but they don't necessarily watch. What people turn to 
is fear narratives or things that put them at risk. Or, uh, and this is what actually politicians use to um, create fear among people. And when you have fear, it shuts you off and uh, it decreases your options as far as responses. And so once she taught me that, then she taught me a technique, which is really this third trick, if you will, which is the ability to change that dialogue, okay? And to change it from one of negativity to one of positivity, to be self-affirming, to be able to tell yourself that you deserve kindness, you deserve to be loved, that you're a good person. What many of us do is we all have a shadow. We all have a part of us which we're not proud of, which we're ashamed of, which uh, uh, is associated with bad decisions we make. And for many of us, we try to push it down or put it in a box so we never have to see it, but it never goes away. And understanding that and understanding that's an innate part of each of us and being able to sit with that and understand it and in the face of that shadow still be able to say, I deserve to be loved. I deserve kindness. I deserve the ability to be my best self. That changes everything. And in fact, this is fundamentally what self-compassion is. Uh, and this, of course, work is characterized by um, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer and has been demonstrated to have a profound, profound effect on uh, a whole variety of... Uh, of um, aspects of health uh, because, again, you don't have that negative emotional response, which leads to a physiologically negative effect. And the other aspect of being able to be compassionate uh, with oneself is that when you're always carrying a negative narrative in your head, two things happen. One is you become very self-focused, and the other is that you think your problems are worse than every other person's problems. And once you're able to be self-compassionate, you are much more able to look outward and to understand and appreciate that everyone is suffering and that oftentimes your own suffering isn't actually that great when you look at the degree of the burdens that others have to carry. And then it allows you to be kind to others and to have an awareness that criticism, uh, negative narratives, they have an effect on people. And when you're able to look at another person and simply be with them, to not judge them, to understand that oftentimes what you perceive as negative behaviors, one, aren't about you at all, and two, uh, oftentimes uh, are a manifestation of their own suffering. And when you incorporate that knowledge, these lessons that this woman taught me, it starts changing everything. The last thing that she taught me, which was also very critical, was an understanding of what I call clarifying one's intention and having one's intentions manifest. And we know from uh, the psychology of athletic performance, but this translates into any type of performance or achievement or manifesting one's intention is that by repetition, 
through visualization, writing down your dreams or aspirations, by having a purity of intention in that it is something positive that doesn't have a negative effect on other people, by incorporating all of your sensory states to repeat over and over this intention, more likely than not, it will manifest. And that's not to say, and I used to believe certainly as a 12-year-old, that that meant I would just draw a straight line from point A to point B and, wow, it magically happens. It doesn't work that way. What it does do is, though, it uses what we now know that when we can put something into our subconscious, then on a subconscious level, events occur, opportunities manifest, or uh, we respond to opportunities that not, may not appear to us on a conscious level that allow us to head towards that goal. And that still means, though, there may be detours, there may be stops, there may be hills, there may be valleys, but I would submit that more likely than not, if you utilize these types of techniques, it will get you there more likely than if you did not at all. And fundamentally, those were the lessons that I was taught and that changed the trajectory of my life. And I tell people that when I changed how I reacted to the world or towards others, then the world changed how it reacted to me. And what we don't appreciate is that when we carry negative emotional states, it affects our body habitus, it affects our facial expressions, it even affects our smell. And as a species, how we've evolved is to acutely respond to those things. So if a person uh, carries anger and hostility, one is going to be suspicious and uh, a bit fearful and actually oftentimes avoid those individuals. And that's just the nature of things. The other thing is that when I learn that the actions of others, which I often had interpreted as somehow being because of me or relating to me, actually oftentimes had nothing to do with me, uh, and also that others were suffering, then it allowed me to alleviate my own hostility, my own pain, my own perception of how people were judging me uh, because I was much more kind to them. And so it changed everything. Thank you so much for that response. Uh, there's so many things that I could pick out of there because it was so rich. There is one thing I want to grab onto, though, in particular, which is you talked about being in a state of suffering and what happens physiologically to the body and how things tend to constrict or contract. And and we had tend to also have a psychologically more of a self-focus and that we're uh, we think our suffering perhaps is the worst that's out there, right? So this is something that happens when a, when we're in a state of suffering. So that being said, um, something else you mentioned in there was also the idea of neuroplasticity and the brain can rewire itself. And I remember reading, I think, and listening to you in various talks you've given, saying how Ruth actually helped you to rewire your brain over those six weeks that she spent with you and through these practices. And one of the things that you talked about in there was the idea of self-compassion and that as we're kinder to ourselves, it opens us up 
and we tend to be able to respond to other suffering. There were a couple of points in the book that really stood out to me from your experience. One was when you were hearing an argument that your parents were in, and you were talking about how you had just been meditating for hours, and you came out of the room, and you said something to them, and it was maybe a very different response that sort of took their breath away in, in some ways. And the other was when you were biking around town, and you saw somebody from a distance who was suffering. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I remember the language in the book being something like you knew something in you had shifted. And uh, and it seems to me that maybe that was from these practices that you were doing. And even within a span of a few weeks, perhaps, there were already changes that were occurring that allowed you to see and act maybe more outwardly than you were used to. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. And again, in some ways, it gets back to manifesting intention and how we don't appreciate uh, actually the power that we have. As an example, we now know that with the implementation of some of these practices, within a few minutes, you can actually uh, positively affect your cardiac function. You can have an effect on the uh, release of uh, stress hormones uh, the expression of inflammatory proteins. I mean, literally within minutes, once you're in the right mental state. And uh, you can see this even manifested in individuals who understand this and have done extraordinary things. I mean, people can run 100 miles without stopping, or there's an individual, <clears throat> his name's, I think, Wim Hof, who... Uh, can go out in the coldest temperatures. In shorts. In shorts. <laughs> I, in fact, I think that I was reading something. He was running up base camp uh, towards Mount Everest uh, in shorts and bare feet. <laughs> but it shows you – now, I would say probably in those types of instances where people achieve that level, that probably what has happened is their mental state has actually matched their genetic potential for a particular activity. But for most people, though, uh, very few people have actually been able to make this connection between their conscious motivation and their unconscious and understand the impact. And so as you were alluding to in those two instances, yes, it started having an immediate effect. I mean, it's like, and I think probably all of us have worked with a boss who's not a particularly nice person, who's demanding, aggressive, probably insecure. And and then, you know, suddenly if they were to walk in and they would greet you and had a big smile on their face, uh, everything would change. And in fact, I even use this as an example of saying, you know, how do you feel if I were to walk into the room with my arms crossed and with a scowl on my face? How would you respond to that? And uh, and conversely, if somebody walks in with a big smile and greets everyone and acknowledges everyone and asks how they're doing, how that changes sort of the energy in the room. And I think that really with this woman, one, creating the sense of psychological safety, just giving me a technique to relax, understanding that I wasn't the only person suffering and also that uh, it was okay to be kind to myself, 
then uh, instead of being a self-focused, as an example, where I may not have, I may have shut off that argument just because I didn't want to hear it, or this uh, uh, individual who was being bullied, I may have just ridden my bike by. It made me feel that I had the ability uh, to change things myself. And in some ways, it's a sense of giving somebody the tools uh, and in some ways the armor uh, to walk in the world uh, without fear. Yeah, I love that. And to me, reading through your book, one of the things that stands out is it's a story of, in some ways, and correct anything that's wrong here, to me it's a story of someone going from perhaps seeing very limited possibilities in their life to expansive possibilities uh, for the future. And one of the things I'm really curious about uh, or fascinated by is this idea of creating conditions where other people can be courageous in their own life. So to overcome fear, to overcome uncertainty, to overcome doubt. And actually, that's one of the reasons that draws me to your work, because I know you've I feel like this might be a passion of yours as well. I know you've done some work um, with gang members and trying to create different conditions where they can see possibilities or, um, you know, kind of move out of places where they don't have opportunities or things like that. And and so, you know, one one of the things I'm curious about is you went from, you know, the story of being 12 years old to now being the director of the Center of Compassion, Altruism, Research, and Education at Stanford University. And obviously, it's very important to you to spread this work and to make it accessible. You know, and and I'm sort of wondering, is compassion, perhaps, in your mind, learning to be more compassionate to other people? And when we provide compassion to another, does that open up possibilities for them? Does that help them to overcome fear? What do you... What are your thoughts on that? No, I think you're exactly right. I think when people can identify with another situation and see that they overcame or have overcome adversity, perhaps similar to theirs or analogous to theirs, uh, and hopefully realize that that person is really not any different from them, then that gives them a view of possibilities. What stops many people from understanding that is that they don't see a model of that. They uh, see their own situation. They replay it in their head. They see others around them in the same situation who've not been able to escape that type of uh, situation. And then they start limiting themselves, as we talked earlier. And again, these negative stories one tells, uh, brick by brick, start building a prison and the walls of that prison start getting smaller in the sense that the the prison cell is getting smaller. It's getting darker, and uh, you don't see the light, uh, the possibility of anything different. And sadly, this happens to far, far uh, too many people. And when you get a glimmer uh, of light, perhaps through a crack between one of those bricks, and you're able to peek out and see that someone is no longer in that prison or someone is breaking out of that prison, then you suddenly realize that possibility might exist for you. And I think that's uh, been my experience. And I think that sharing that, whether through my book or 
hopefully through my own actions as a human being, uh, that gives uh, the idea of possibilities. I'll tell you a really quick story that very much directly relates to this. Uh, when I started the center almost uh, about 10 years ago, it was me as a center of one person, and uh, which any project or, in fact, any major change in the world always starts with one person. And I was visiting Ming. I don't know if you know Ming. He wrote the book Search Inside Yourself. He's a Google engineer. And it's a meditation program, and it's actually very powerful. I was visiting Ming over at Google one day, and there was a young man in his 20s who was always with him whenever I went and visited. And I have to be honest with you, at that time, in terms of the science of compassion uh, and even mindfulness, there really was not that much literature, and I knew very little of it. I just knew uh, deep inside that uh, my hypothesis that being kind, being compassionate, being thoughtful uh, would have a positive physiologic effect, that was what set in my mind. But when I went over there, this young man always was able to quote some piece of literature super bright kid. And I began talking to him and I invited him. I said, listen, why don't you come to work for me as my first employee? And I said, I'll make you the program coordinator because he was so bright. And I assumed since he was Myth Ming and Ming was an engineer, that he was an engineer. It turned out he was actually a massage therapist, (laughs) (laughs) a very bright massage therapist, and he had an interest in neuroscience and had gone, I think, to two years in college at that time. It dropped out, but he had studied neuroscience. And uh, obviously, I made the job offer to him, and I had to live up to it. And you can imagine what it was like trying to get him hired at Stanford, essentially as a high school graduate, to work for me, and it was very difficult. But ultimately, I did hire him. And he was, again extraordinarily bright, contributed an immense amount to the success of our initial um, uh, development of the center. And um, so then we started talking about some research projects, and I said, well, why don't we do this one? And I actually funded it through the center. And I said, listen, because I wanted him to develop, I said, I want you to do two things. I want you to go back to college and I want you to work on this research project. And he did. He ultimately finished and got his degree in neuroscience. He worked in this research project, and I sat down with him, and I said, listen, this is not your future, hanging out with me. I I love you, but you were meant for other things. So then I um, said, listen, you can't work for me anymore. Um, The scientist for this project I funded, I said, he really wants you to work full-time. Now, what this young man doesn't know still is I actually paid the scientist to hire him full-time. So he went to work for him, and ultimately uh, he decided to go to either medical school or get a PhD, and I met with him, and he decided he wanted to get a PhD. So long story short, uh, about three weeks ago, I was on his oral dissertation committee. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) For his neuroscience PhD at Princeton. That's extraordinary. Look at this. Yeah. I mean, here's a kid who, without that intersection, probably would still be at Google. Uh, You know, I don't know for that that for sure, but certainly he uh, um, appreciates that intersection. And, you know, uh, and the thing, though, is 
those types of interactions are available to all of us to give to another. You know, oftentimes people will sit and say, you know, I'm not in a position, I don't have money, et cetera, et cetera. But even the smallest act uh, can have a profound, profound impact that you don't even know about. And, uh, you know, even for myself, I've had people come up to me and they go, you know, I remember five years ago, you took the time and talked to me about that. And honestly, I don't remember it. But they said, you know, that had such a profound effect on my decision making at that time. And I think for many of us, this does happen. But when you practice these types of acts over and over with intention and understand that within you, by your example, by your presence, can give that gift to somebody, it's extraordinary. And it costs you nothing. Thanks for that reminder, first of all, of to never underestimate the power of a kind act and, and that it can be small you know, or it can be large and very involved. Um, you know, that brings to, I mean, first of all, that's a very inspiring story. Thank you for sharing that um, in such an open and, and honest way. That brings to mind a couple of things about, you know, kind acts or altruism, which are one, I've taken the eight-week course at the Stanford Medical School, Compassion Cultivation Training, which I know you had a hand in uh, developing and creating. And I found the course to be extraordinary for a number of reasons. But one was um, because when I think of these qualities of compassion and kindness and empathy, it's kind of like um, been historically, I think a lot, uh, the conversation has been in religious sectors of society, etc. It's kind of a nice thing to do. It's a moral obligation, whatever it might be. But there's language in there and there's research to back this up that shows that these are skills that we can train and we can actually train our hearts to open more. So based upon the work you've done with C-Care and on cultivating compassion, um, I'm curious about some of the most exciting findings you've seen come out of the neuroscience or the science of compassion and just a little just a little bit more just to frame this up a little bit more i know you also had a hand in editing and creating the first the first handbook on the science of compassion through oxford university press which is fantastic so congratulations on that but some people might not put these together science and compassion so i'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that well it's interesting you bring that up uh, because when I first approached some uh, neuroscientists and psychologists at Stanford and talked about, if you will, academic research or real research in this domain, uh, uh, at best uh, I was laughed at <laughs> and at worst ridiculed. And uh, at that time, this idea of... Um, uh, being able to quantify, if you will, how uh, practicing compassion with intention was really completely sort of unusual and far off the beaten track. And in fact, uh, maybe even Nadi perceived as on a track that uh, was associated with science. And uh, fortunately, uh, just because of uh, probably my own persistent nature and uh, – Really, the belief in the hypothesis, was, which was based on a, a lot of uh, thought, uh, I just proceeded forward. And obviously, having read my book, you can appreciate that once I have decided to move in a direction, uh, 
uh, I move in that direction, and I don't need affirmation of others. And I don't say that in a negative way, but what happens for many of us is that when we present an idea of something we want to accomplish, a dream, a goal, an aspiration, and we share it with others, sometimes people who are even close to us denigrate the idea. And it's not necessarily because they're intentionally being mean, but it's as if they can't see themselves doing it, and therefore they can't see you doing it. And this is what happens to so many people is that they give their power to other people to determine what they can and cannot accomplish by listening to these negative messages. And one of the things that this woman Ruth taught me at the age of 12 was not to do that. And that is probably one of the most powerful gifts that each of us can give ourselves is to understand that we are the only limiter of our possibilities, our potential, and that in reality, we are much, much, much stronger than we have any perception of. But getting back to your uh, specific uh, question, I was fortunate in that when I began down this path regarding compassion and altruism that uh, I had been a successful entrepreneur and could fund these research projects. And even if you interact with scientists who don't necessarily agree with your hypothesis, if you fund the research, since many of them are scrambling for research dollars, they will at least uh, be more <laughs> open. <laughs> and what happened is that, in fact, uh, out of the initial group of individuals who initially scoffed at the idea, uh, two ultimately changed their entire research direction once they saw the power of the data uh, to um, being focused on this. And as you pointed out, uh, about six months ago, I had the joy of being the senior editor of uh, the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, which brings together the latest research in this field uh, from a variety of domains. And again, as I said, if you look 10 years ago, there was only a, a paper here and a paper there. But we now see that this body of literature is ever, ever expanding. And in some ways, it's like uh, when John Kabat-Zinn first uh, developed uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. He was, uh, first of all, uh, the idea was scoffed at and the idea of meditation or that somehow you could uh, control your mental state and that would have an effect was uh, really ridiculed. And then, you know, we see a few articles and we see a few more. And now research in that domain like is happening in the area of compassion science is exponentially growing. And the reality, too, is that 10 years ago, if you – had a graduate student, postdoctoral student say, you know, I really want to study compassion, you would be told that that was an academic dead end. Career it, killer, maybe. <laughs> exactly, true. And now this is one of the most vibrant areas that uh, individuals are going into because in terms of how being compassionate, being kind, being altruistic can have an impact on society in all sorts of domains is quite extraordinary. Whether it's for the individual, and you alluded to the Compassion Cultivation Training program that we developed at Stanford, which there's a body of science that shows you how, if you will, and we were talking about athletes, but how most of us do not maximize our genetic potential for whatever it is. 
but certainly in regard to compassion. And when you're able to manifest that, what you have within, maximize it, or at least uh, improve it, it has a huge positive uh, effect. And um, that's just with the individual. But then when you realize that when people practice these behaviors and people see them, it influences them to be more positive, to be more compassionate. And it's like a ripple effect that spreads. And if you then look in the area of healthcare, uh, we have a crisis in regard to burnout uh, among healthcare professionals. And uh, we see that by, with intention, incorporating these types of practices, it has a profound effect on uh, burnout levels and by increasing one's resilience to adversity. And if you look in the educational environment, we see this. And in fact, you're talking about my book. There is a group of principals and uh, senior educators who are actually creating a program for use in uh, middle and high school uh, for children who are suffering, uh, children of poverty, children who uh, have been exposed to uh, some of these negative uh, events in their lives, to use as a method to increase their own resilience, to inspire them, and teach them some of these meditation practices. And then if you look in the business sector, you know, uh, one of the greatest expenditures of healthcare dollars uh, and tech companies in Silicon Valley, as an example, is – and because remember, you have a population that's probably between 25 and 40 as a majority of uh, employees. They're not getting diabetes. Uh, they're not getting heart disease per se. There is an epidemic of stress, anxiety, and depression, and associated with those are negative uh, physiologic states, uh, headache, back pain, gastrointestinal disorders, all sorts of things that are – demonstrative of the mind-body connection, but in a negative way. And we've already seen through a variety of studies that when you implement these types of programs, when you change the culture of the company from one of a fear-based, uh, stressful one to one of a compassion-positive uh, focus, not only does productivity increase, creativity increases, and there are better decisions made because we know that when you can exit that fear state and go into this other part of our autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is called the rest and digest system, this is the place where our physiology works its best because you're calm, you feel physiologically safe, and when that happens, you have many more choices because your executive control function is working at its best and you have access to memories and prior experiences uh, versus the fear state where you're in survival mode and your uh, ability to respond is very limited. So when your executive control function is working at its best, you are much more discerning and thoughtful about decisions you make. Your creativity is boosted because, again, you're looking at the world in an expansive way. You're not shut down, limiting your possibilities. And, of course, we know that in these types of stressful environments, there's a huge amount of employee disengagement. And when you change the narrative to one of compassion and psychological safety, that amount of disengagement dramatically increases. And then what's amazing uh, that happens is you see that healthcare uh, dollar expenditure is dramatically decreased and human resource costs are dramatically decreased because 
what happens is when somebody is uh, functioning in a fear-based environment, they don't want to take a promotion, they're not as productive, they have health issues, and oftentimes they leave the company. So you can see the direct connection between uh, human resource uh, expenditures. And then let's look at uh, civic government, if you will. Uh, We have a militarized police system. And when you have a militarized policing uh, system, it becomes us versus them. And then again, it's a fear-based action that drives it. And as a result, bad decisions are made, negative events escalate, and uh, because it's like a war versus what has been shown over and over again when you look at you being part of a community in which you're serving and both parties, the police and the non-police or the community, are working together to make the environment a better place or the community a better place, magic happens. And then if you look at the prison system, I would submit to you that the vast majority of people in prison are not there because they're bad people. They're just not. The vast majority of people who are in prison are there because they did not receive love, nurturing, and kindness as children, period. And we know this. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we have a system of retribution, not of redemption, And, you know, frankly, keeping people in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, that is a war crime to me. I mean, that is the worst thing you can do. That is inhumanity. There are lights, though, at the end of the tunnel. There's something called the um, Compassionate Cities Movement, where mayors are actually integrating these things we're just talking about into every level of the community, looking at how can we be a better community? How can we protect those who are most vulnerable? How do we spread a compassion narrative? Because we know through science, we know through just observation, that everything works better in those types of situations. We're sitting in your office here, and I don't have a clean segue for this, but there's a wonderful picture of you and His Holiness the Dalai Lama both laughing. And uh, at the beginning of your book, I believe, you wrote a thank you and said something along the lines of um, His Holiness had taught you so much about compassion. And part of me wonders uh, if that comes from his way of being, just the way that he is. And I think to some findings within the compassion literature that shows that you know, one of the predictors of compassion later in life is the level of compassion that parents show to the child. So more in their way of of being, they learn from that. So curious about that and just curious about what you've learned from the Dalai Lama about compassion and what sort of compelled you to write that note to him. Well, uh, just to respond uh, to a couple of the uh, uh, statements. Um, One is, it's interesting, uh, you mentioned parenting. Uh, the individual who we talked about earlier, who I did the um, Alphabet of the Heart uh, podcast with, uh, James Kirby, who's a PhD, who uh, was one of my fellows, he actually studies compassion and parenting. In fact, he's going to be doing a book soon. But uh, <clears throat> back to your specific question relating to the Dalai Lama, there is a wonderful picture. And in fact, it's the Dalai Lama giving me a headlock uh, uh, 
and that was taken during a uh, a visit here uh, when Seacare uh, hosted him. And it was really quite funny because I had brought all of my lab personnel and the, the people who work at Seacare together to have, uh, share with them an opportunity to be in the presence of His Holiness. And um, somebody asked him a question as to why he was involved with the, with this work. And that's when he put his arm around me like that and pulled me towards him. And I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, uh, because this guy has such a big heart, <laughs> which was very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and the story, to get back to the other question of why did I dedicate the book, it's actually quite strange because when I began working uh, from on the research of this, and as I say in the book, uh, I'm an atheist. I have no belief uh, other than what I tell people the present moment. But one day I was walking through Stanford, and it was very strange because I got an image of the Dalai Lama. And again, for a person who's not particularly religious, I have no clue as to where that image came from. And what's funny is my wife was a big fan of the Dalai or is a big fan of the Dalai Lama and was at that time. And he had visited a few years before, and I refused to go with her to the event. (laughs) (laughs) So it was strange that this image stuck with me. But regardless, uh, I ended up, it wouldn't leave me. And I said, I should invite him to come and talk about compassion. And so ultimately, I did uh, end up having a meeting with him. The very first meeting I had was in Seattle in 2008. And I expressed to him uh, the work that I had begun in my interests, and he was very supportive and enthusiastic And he immediately agreed to come to Stanford. And then our conversation went on for over an hour, even though it was initially scheduled for about 15 minutes. And Thupton Jinpa, who's his primary English translator and a former monk, near the end of our meeting, they began an animated dialogue in Tibetan, which, of course, I could not understand. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, did I uh, antagonize or irritate the Dalai Lama? And ultimately, uh, Jin Paul then stopped and turned to me and he said, His Holiness is so moved by this path you've taken that he wishes to uh, give a personal donation. And at that singular meeting, he gave me the largest donation he'd ever given to a non-Tibetan cause at that time. And it was just overwhelming, not only that he agreed to come, but he did that for me. And as I've progressed in this area and have spent a lot more time with him. What he represents in terms of to myself and the world as far as uh, the importance of compassion, the power of compassion, how it changes everything. I mean, look at the the man. I mean, he is a living icon known in a positive way by almost every human being on this earth. And his presence, his message has profoundly, profoundly affected millions, if not billions, of people, So to be able to spend time with him, to be able to do this work, and t- for him to be our founding benefactor is extraordinarily meaningful to me. Plus, uh, the other thing, and you can actually see this if you look at uh, my book, Into the Magic Shop, by the nature of the endorsements, uh, to have so many religious leaders, and it's interesting me being an atheist, right, uh, endorse the book, right? You have uh, uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Amma, uh, Mature Card, all sorts of incredible individuals, as well as leaders in the field of mindfulness and uh, 
meditation, both from a uh, experiential level as f- as well as those who are researching it, as well as neuroscientists all over the world, really uh, shows you uh, how powerful uh, this message is, how important it is, and uh, I feel uh, very, very blessed. It's also interesting to me because people say, geez, I don't understand how you can have such a relationship with so many spiritual and religious icons when you have openly said you're an atheist. And uh, what I tell people is that I believe one of the reasons is is I have no agenda. And if you interact with these individuals, while certainly in the context of their spiritual practice, the dogma is important on some level, for an evolved spiritual leader, the most important thing is authenticity, having an open heart, and you care. And that, if you can do that, they can read this in a microsecond. And it's not how much of whatever text you can memorize and recite to them, because that's not the practice. That's not walking the walk. And a lot of people believe that if they can memorize enough stuff and do this, that that will separate them. And then that becomes an ego issue and an attachment issue. It's not about that. It's about being an authentic, caring human being and radiate that. And this is what the Dalai Lama does and other spiritual leaders. When you are in the presence of an individual like that, there is suddenly a feeling of unconditional love. And so many of us don't experience that very often. Because in our modern environment, what happens is that we project an image of what we want people to see, that we're not vulnerable, that we have our act together, that we're accomplished, not that we're afraid, we're scared, we're hurt, we're having an issue with our partner, we're having an issue with our child, somebody is suffering, we know we can't do anything about it. And when we hide the reality of our humanity away from others, then we can't truly connect. As an example, you know, I have no problem with my voice shaking or shedding a tear or even crying in public audiences. And to me, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. And when you do that, as soon as you do that, everyone opens up. They start shedding a tear. They start crying because when people see you suffering – Their natural state is to intervene, to hold you, to nurture you, and to care, and we forget that. And that's what these people symbolize is they're letting you remove that psychological mask and be your true self. And uh, when you do that, you don't appreciate the weight of that psychological burden that you placed on yourself, and then suddenly there's just immense joy and a feeling that, again— you as who you truly are, with your shadow, with all the bad stuff you think about you, you're okay and someone just loves you for you. And that's extraordinary to be in that situation where you can just sit with somebody and have them just love you. And it's a joy. And that's why people are attracted to people like that. Well, Dr. Doty, it's been such a privilege and an honor. I had high expectations for this conversation. I was looking forward to it. And it just exceeded all of them. So I really appreciate your generosity and taking the time. No, thank you. And success uh, with this work you're doing. And thank you for being you. Take care. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Courageous Life. I'd like to extend special thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Matt Donner, for all of the incredible behind-the-scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and the conversation, please do share with friends because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.